I'm Dr. Sharon Dukes. And I'm Melvin Dukes. We're HBC graduates, proud educators, and most importantly, husband, husband and wife. wife. And you're listening to After School, School Talk, Talk Podcast. Podcast. But also, because we are in such troubling times where yeah. I have to question my movements. I was walking in my parents' neighborhood two days ago. So yeah, and your parents neighbor, your parents live in a nice bougie neighborhood. Nice little bougie neighborhood. Now grew up here all my life. I wanna live over I wanna live where your parents live, actually. Tell them put me in the wind. I need I want that. I want to inherit that house. Y'all don't even need that house. I need that house for me in my life. He gonna move you and the wife and the child. We moving in over here. Y'all stay over there. But you know, I will be over there like I'll be like this. I'll be like, "Hello, welcome to the Duke's house. You've named it in honor of them, but like, made the changes. Sharon, your your picture, your queen picture, is still up, okay? Because we just we're gonna move it to the left. At least then put my portrait up, please. That <laughs> <laughs> you so graciously handed me. <laughs> but you know, I love it. you know when you grow up somewhere. It's just where I grew up, not even thinking about it. But I was walking through the neighborhood, walking. Now mm-hmm. I'm gonna tell you the first thing. I always smile when the white people walk past <laughs> me. Let me not make them think that I'm a threat. And number one, I shouldn't have to Man, do that. Okay. Fact, yeah, we we have to. We have that, to, but we gotta we smile to that. so that you're not threatened by yeah. me. Okay. So then Please the next smile. thing, I'm walking, <laughs> just going, talking on the phone to the rail, just going. I see a sign in somebody's yard that says Trump Pence 2020. I turn my little yep. hot hips around and walk right back to my mama's house. Cause I was just mm-hmm. like, you know what? In the space that I'm in right now, I don't I, I don't I don't even want to see you come out your house or know who you are or nothing. <laughs> I and I don't and I don't need you to see me, some black girl walking through the neighborhood. Cause I don't care what you say. You're wondering where, like, where's she coming from? What, what, why she over here? It, cause, and, and, and I'm, and I know you know who the black people are that live in this neighborhood, cause it ain't but three of us. Mm-hmm. So I know you didn't count it. Thank y'all. you. I didn't count it. Like, she must be one of those houses. But that's the type of thing you don't, you try to get white people to understand. And I'm thankful for Chris that was on our episode that said, hey, I had to acknowledge my privilege. I had to acknowledge my experiences are far less dangerous than yours. Right. But it's it's well, it's traumatic to have to. I can't just walk in if I want to have the rest and be face. I can. No, I can't. Cause take on this old white lady. Nope. So let me smile. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I I think that black people have learned that there is like there's danger in being in white spaces, but also like there's there there are pro- when you are in white spaces there are approximations to luxury that you get to experience right no doubt black neighborhoods get policed very differently than white neighborhoods we know that absolutely which is why even black people don't want to live in those neighborhoods mm-hmm. the some of the black neighborhoods where i live there is no grocery store for five miles around mm-hmm. like in a five mile radius there's not a grocery mm-hmm. store I live in the predominantly white side of town, which when we tell people where we live, they be like, ooh, y'all got money. No, my wife don't like, she won't live in the black, she's not going to live in poverty. She just said, right. she said poverty, she said poverty is a sin and we can't live there. Right. There you go. <laughs> so, <laughs> so and, I mean, and and the other thing is, it's actually, it was prox- it was real close to her job. So like, if we, if something happened, she could get to work. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in my vicinity and there are probably negative 10 black people that live near us I, there are a few black folk that live near us but not many we have seven grocery stores in a in less than a three mile radius like i can walk i'm in walking wow. distance I, listen, to it you least. said seven grocery stores and my it, my headphone fell out it was like say how many what <laughs> right so, like, that's the reason why black people want to live in these luxury neighborhoods, because we want to live near access. We want access. Like, we don't necessarily, like, if we could get access in our own neighborhoods, I think that we would, some of us will opt. It's the same way with HBCUs. If we could have, if we could know that we would go, that you could go to Morehouse and then become a lawyer, then you would go to Morehouse, right? Mm-hmm. Or Spelman, if you could afford it, because they're expensive, let's be clear. Um but but it's the it's the it's not it's the not knowing when it comes to like housing and residential 
um, racism, which we call redlining, you know, that really is scary. So like, even though like black bougie people could live in like, in, in like these very mostly class neighborhoods, they often opt out of those neighborhoods because they grew up in those neighborhoods and they know the trauma of those neighborhoods and they know the risk of those neighborhoods and they know gang violence will grab little black boys and they know little girls can easily be brought into the drug trade or the prostitution rings or opioid addiction. Like they just know that those, those environments are hazardous. But the trade-off of living in white neighborhoods is that white neighborhoods are hazardous as well, mm-hmm. right? Because if you don't take the apple pie by the people's houses and smile, if you on your porch and you, you know, and you outside drinking and doing black kind of black habits, then like white people get real scared. Like sit in your car too long, they get to, they be like a suspicious person is in my, is in our neighborhood, right? And you could have been living there 25 years, right? Mm-hmm. So I do think that that is like the reality of like where like what we are dealing with. And that is, and that is a lot of work. Like there's a lot of, Sharon, did you realize that how much work you were doing when you had to, when you just had to walk out your house? And then in these moments where we already dealing with a pandemic, that with incompetent leadership across the board. And then, and now we can, you might, you still got to go outside and smile. So like you made a, so here's a valid point, which the cultural, which black cultural centers around the country are asking. How safe are black students walking around on campuses with their half of their faces covered? Mm, not at all. Not at all. Right. And what is the responsibility of a cultural center to ensure their safety when we go back to these spaces for so that they are not mi- not just microaggressive, but they are not shot, they're not handcuffed, they like that they don't have these experiences that end up turning into like a hunger strike or a protest of the campus, right? Mm-hmm. So like, that's the work that cultural centers are also doing, right? So we had to ask ourselves, okay, they told us to cover our faces. So what kind of mask do black people have to put on their face so that they look like they're not gonna hurt nobody? And it's funny that you bring this up because this is something that I have, you know, the average person would not think about at all. Like you just said, we already have to show the extra Hey, I'm a pleasant black person. I'm okay. I'm cool. But like you said, now we about to go into an environment or a space now where, you know, half my face got to be covered up. And, you know, <laughs> now you definitely scared of me because all you see is my eyes and you don't see that I got a nice friendly smile on my face because it's being covered. <laughs> so now it's going to be, you know, I got to throw my hand up in the air to make sure you see me wave. And and I'm not even wearing a mask. I'm not wearing a, a face shield, a clear face shield. Right. So you can still see that I'm smiling. I'm happy. But, I'm but Melvin, right. But Melvin, go. I want you to, to tell this story because it speaks to that. Okay, please tell Palmer about when uh, they were looking for a suspicious student on campus when you said George Tech. I, I think I've, I've told this story before on on the podcast. I don't know, but um, you I know you told our students, but I don't think you said it on the podcast. I don't know, but um, no, on when I was at Georgia Tech, uh, you know, during my time in Georgia Tech, uh, we had a study group that met, you know, at night. It might have been like nine, ten o'clock at night in one of the uh, engineering buildings. And it was cold, so I had my Georgia Tech hoodie on or whatever. And at the time, I did uh, part-time work in our mail room for our apartment complex on the the campus apartments. Um, so, you know, going to my, 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 my study group or whatever, got my book bag on, my hoodie on, walking from my apartment to the engineering building. I swipe my card, get into the building, blah, blah, blah. You know, all these high-tech buildings, you got to use a card to get into. And mm-hmm. I go up to the third floor, meet up with the with the with the group, and I'm probably there no no more than about ten or fifteen minutes, and I'm seeing flashlights and cop lights outside the building. Now you gotta think I'm in the engineering building on campus, the top floor with my study group. It's like ten, eleven o'clock at night. I'm seeing you know blue lights outside, flashing uh, flashlights going off and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, well, I don't know what's going on, but they get to the action. Now, that boy, they get to that action. Next thing I know, know next thing I know, I see the cops on our floor, on the third floor, coming towards our study group. I said, "Well, I don't know who they trying to get, but they they trying to get them. They about to get them." Next thing I know, the flashlight comes directly to me. Now, mind you, the lights are already on in at our study group. Say where we are, the lights come flashing on to me, and I hear one of the guys say, "Him." Man, he 
work in the mail room. And I said, him what? <laughs> I'm like, him what? Man, they said right. you were such and such and such. So come to find out, you know, they were looking for some suspicious dude or whatever. And, you know, the way they put it, I just so happened to fit the bill. Um, big black guy, uh, hoodie on, blah, blah, blah. You know what? But I'm just like, bruh, I'm, I'm in the engineering building. The only way you can get in at this time of night is with your uh, student card. I got on the Georgia yeah. Tech hoodie. I got on a book bag. And now that y'all walked up on me, I'm with a study group. So Sir, what, what threat am care, I posing right you, now? For all they care, you was from Zone 5. <laughs> Say that. And on the like side you of the track. Up, <laughs> right. And you had come over there to steal all... I don't know what was in the engineering building that somebody from Zone 5 would want it. Right. <laughs> it's the chemistry building. Ain't, ain't, ain't nothing they can use over there. Ain't nothing they can use over there. Oh. But no, I mean, no, that's the, that reality is like, I don't know of a black man that did stop. It was one of the reasons that Duke, I wore Duke t-shirts all the time. Mm-hmm. Like people would be like, why are you, or they would be like, I was always well-dressed. The champ, the president at the time used to always say, come on, look at the best dressed student on campus. They didn't realize like that was because one day I had on sweats, um, you know, as my wife says, sometimes she said, you know, Sean, Sean goes through a periodic period of letting himself go. <laughs> And so, <laughs> so I had on sweats and a t-shirt and I had on a hoodie and somebody was like, hey, I need you to come pick up this trash over here. What? And the the black, the black bourgeois uppity Negro jumped up in me so bad. I like I channeled Du Bois. Like I was just like, who is picking up trash? I don't pick up trash. I am a student here. I am a I have a 3.7 GPA. <laughs> like, I just, like, I just, like, it was so jarring. I have had friends be mistaken as basketball players and let into the games because they was like, you late. Like, I literally had a friend, like, because he was tall. He was in seminary with me. And they were like, oh, um, you late. You need to be, you need to be putting on your clothes. He was like, okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> because they really like I used to do the most. I was like, I would I mean, even when I worked there, I was good for wearing bow ties and tying sweaters around my neck. And some of those were like some of those were like visual cues that I belong. Like that I'm prepping. Ooh, Palmer, visual say, cues. Yes. Visual cues sir. that I belong. Say so that. like we 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 would do I would do stuff like I mean I was definitely one of those kids who had on like I would go get the loafers and I wear J Crew Ooh. and not even and Ralph Lauren and like I and you know and that's hard when you think like when you think yes. it's difficult yes 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 yeah boy you ain't lying bro you ain't lying you right. ain't lying jeez and then one no. I I'll never forget one of my homegirls Courtney Bryant was um one of we were in. We were talking about the kind of black man that works at at, at Duke, and she was like, um, "You know, they'll never be like the kind of black man that that like Omega represents that'll work in a place like this because they're scared of that kind of black man." And I and we were talking about like the ways in which like like there's a certain kind of performance, and it's not just it's visual. It's so it's visual, it's sonic. Meaning, like it's like you, it's some it's oral, so like it has a and like and then it and then it really has to it performs like the the sad thing about like black people working in predominantly white spaces, which is why we're so exhausted when we get home and need like margaritas and rums and cokes and such, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and maybe even you know in places around the country where you know the marijuana is legal, you probably got an edible or a little <laughs> blunt or something like. <laughs> wherever you live that might be legal it's not legal in the south so we can't do that it's illegal we don't recommend it get you a cigar okay um that was my little thing um but the reality is we like so there's a there's 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 language for this black performance like there we are performing a certain kind of safe blackness that allows us to be safe so that white people are not freaked out about us being there which and that is difficult you know and that's difficult to do that every day because literally because what we don't realize is we're still in blackface we're still performing minstrelsy yeah 
Yeah. It's mm-hmm. just a yeah. professional to a certain, version. Yeah, mm-hmm. to a certain degree. Like you said, professional version. You absolutely and, right. you know, one of my um friends called it, uh he said he realized that people what's the word? Oh oh that he was a palatable black. Mm-hmm. That you can be tolerated. Palatable. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I was like, Oh, so they can tolerate you. And and that's a part of the performance. Mm-hmm. I want you to be able to tolerate me. And so what I don't yeah, want to do is make you was uncomfortable. Was he light skin black? No, he's actually dark skin. Uh, what well, I saw, I'm always interested. I'm because I, I always think palatable black. You, I mean, colorism is one of the reasons that I mean, one of the reasons that colorism persists as a part as a byproduct of white supremacy is because complexion make some some complexion makes white people safe, right? Like some of the the uh, some of like you know like the fact that you're not uber masculine, the fact are the cool black boy who wears pink shorts. And like talks like that, like who whose whose cultural idioms don't show up in his vocal intonation, right? So he ain't gonna be like he's not speaking for he's not like hey hey what's going on? Like he's not gonna talk to you from his gut. He's gonna talk to you from his throat. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. and like that's a performance. Mm-hmm. Like that's like let's be clear that is not so like when even like when black people start talking about naming whiteness and I you hear black kids do it early on, right? Like talk like they talking like white people. They're not talking about you. I don't. I have never felt like that was about you talking properly, right? It's suggesting that you assume that that is the only, like that is the king's English is the only way to communicate, and so like, and that other ways of communication are not valid, right? So you talk through your neck, and you and like you're always asking a question, like you when you get around. Folk, that's what like that's what we do, right? We go like, oh yeah, like, but like I don't know how you would feel about that, yes, right? Like it's, it's a tone, but like that's not how we talk at home. Like that's not how your mama call your name. Your mama, like, and even if she's the bougie black mama who doesn't scream, you know, like Sharon's mama, um, <laughs> <laughs> she still she's still gonna say things like that dog don't hunt honey yeah. or she gonna say stuff like you throw the rock and hide the hand yeah. or you know she gonna say like she gonna say like uh you know you'll steal the stank out of anything you know like she gonna say like there is a certain there is a linguistic structure that we have to be okay with with arguing that it that does come with black identity and sometimes it shows up in our vocal intonation which is why we have amazing music like gospel and hip-hop mm-hmm. and jazz and rock and roll, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if we keep going. So, but like, but let's be clear, like, palatable black usually means that we are paying more attention to the things that are white in our world. Yes. Um, we perform a certain kind of proximate whiteness that is culturally relevant to them, but real talk, like, like my family used to be like, I'll never forget when I would come home with my um, sweater tied around my neck. My aunt be like, don't do that. That's ugly. <laughs> Sweater from around your neck. <laughs> and I'll be like, I they would be like, oh, you know, Sean like all that little cute stuff. He like bow ties and them uh-huh. little yeah, stuff. Like and I and, and so for me, like there is a there is a place where like I what I am what I think about even then, like I always was trying to create find figure out a way to perform to look safe enough, but also still be true to myself. So like it was the one reason I you I, you know if you look at across my wardrobe it's all bright as hell mm-hmm. like ain't no oatmeal gray tan nothing it's pink it's blue it's green because I love the fact that black people are vibrant mm-hmm. and I were I still worked in a cultural center so I wanted to be vibrant mm-hmm. so um, I love black people's natural swag like right. I just love it so so I mean I think that you know I think that had I only gone to white spaces. I would have been more concerned about that performance, but I also knew that that performance was just so that we all stay safe. That performance wasn't my, that was, that wasn't necessarily who I was. And I think that some black people get caught up in thinking that's who they are. That performance is so we stay safe. Yeah. Yeah. That. So we stay safe. <clears throat> that is hitting me in my soul. Yeah. I need to keep this job. I need to, <laughs> right. I need so a promotion. Okay, now I'm not going to cuss y'all out, but I'm going to not be in my office so that you don't know I don't like right. you. Right. So. Oh, and then, and then you, and, and, and that's from, that's just from the aspect of, okay, let me, let me make them comfortable to, I need to keep my life. 
Mm-hmm. I just watched like, a video of a police officer um, literally beating the snot out of a black guy who he who really? he had his hands behind his back. It was literally the dude must have said something to him that triggered the cop. So now he just started wailing on him, just start punching the guy. The female cop with him is trying to stop the cop. She even looking like, what's wrong? <laughs> when I tell you, my right. mom said, see, that's why you can't say nothing. And and we both had a moment of just <laughs> you was like, but mama, that's messed up. Yes, but she was like, Sharon, that's literally like that's literally the the it's you don't you don't want it to be like that. That's right. not what I want. Sometimes you just, just but, you don't lock me up. So I so I'm <laughs> let me it was me like, up. bro, he couldn't even say nothing. <laughs> The trauma, uh, the reason that black, I, I, I would argue, and I'm using Naeem Akbar here and some of his, and there's a sister, I'm drawing blanks, but the sister wrote on, there's a sister who wrote on post-traumatic stress, uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome. And one of the things that comes out of slavery is that African-Americans, like most people don't realize that African-Americans actually were sometimes um the people who beat other enslaved africans like they were sometimes the slave drivers Mm -hmm. so now think about that psychologically think about like what that looks like psychologically so like in i'm not gonna tell all of our business in in black greek life but i will say this there have been periods of time in black greek life where um line brothers exacted or line sisters exacted the punishment instead of the people who are pledging you. That stuff is all connected. Mm-hmm. And here's how it's connected to violence in the home when you talk about toxic parenting. And going back to Maddie Mouse Clark and going back to Joe Jackson is that, th- that there is violence in the home that these violences are meant to, these violences are um, protective measures in some regard because I, I, if I beat you here mm. because you cussed at me or you sucked under your breath or you slammed the door in my house, yeah. that's going to be better than if you sucked your teeth in front of a yes. cop and got shot. Yes. Because when you leave this house, I cannot I control what white people right. do to you. Right. Do so I have right. got to teach you how to be perfectly black in a world that will kill you because you ain't nothing but a you're nothing but a commodity then. Yeah, you're nothing but like like you're you're you are um contraband. You are you used to be a product ca- ca- called a slave, but now we really don't have need for you. So the way we the way we use you is to kill you or to put you in slavery, which we call the criminal justice like the criminal justice system, right? So like black folk often beat kids because they know if you go to the school and like show out they couldn't control what the teacher. They could not. Con, they couldn't compete with a system that would kick you out and throw you in DJJ, and they, and they weren't going because they didn't have no lawyers. They didn't know how the school system worked, right? Like so, they had to teach you how to be respectful. They had to teach you how to suck to not fight the white lady who is mean and nasty and who they want to punch in their face. They had to show you that so that all of us could stay safe. Everything like I really believe like some of that violence that we have learned over the last that we have kept alive over the last hundred plus years has a lot to do with the fact that we, that it comes from slavery um, and that that violence is meant to be exacted so that we are not facing that, facing a different level of violence, like being lynched from a tree, shot in our backs when we are outside. Yes. So that, that's the, that's the rough reality. And I'll tell you who talks about it in his book. I'll give you a reference. Um, I have just finished reading Kiese Lehman. I'm hoping I'm saying his name right. It's either Kiese or Keith Lehman's book called Heavy. And in the book, he was talking about going, he was like, uh, he was talking about this episode where a white teacher's, him and this other student were talking back to this white teacher. She got mad and then she called their parents. And so in the exchange, he said, he writes, he was like, it was so interesting. It was, it was so, I'm, I'm, paraphrasing mm-hmm. so stop I'm, you know just give you the paraphrase mm-hmm. that he said it was so interesting that white people white people's word could make you take us home and beat us um and that we had we could not control so even in our home we couldn't control the consequences of whiteness 
Like I was sitting there like, whoa, okay, I gotta stop. Like, I mean, like it that was profound to me to think about like the fact that white women had so much control of the world that that they could instruct the black woman to go home and beat the very child she had be, without knowing the real con, whether the child was really in the wrong or whether the white woman was intimi- um, intimidated and didn't want to teach the little black kids, which is usually what happens, right? Because that's you know that's how they work. Uh, my head is about to explode, <laughs> like uh, yeah. No, okay, wait. Number one, because I was, I wasn't playing with the truth. I said I was taking those. I've got to teach you how to be perfectly black. That's the first thing. Mm-hmm. I see yep. that. I see that. Especially, I'll say, my friends, all of us that grew up, of how your parents were just trying to make sure that you were perfectly black. And and they mm-hmm. did it out of love. They didn't want nothing to happen to you or somebody to yep. to look at my black son who is so smart in some other way. So I need you to not wear your hat backwards. I need you to button up your shirt at the top. Move I need you to up. put Take on the suit. You Take it, yeah, mm-hmm. I need you to do all that because I don't want nobody to look at you differently. Though they should not judge you in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's why they were like keeping us in this this box and trying to um, what we looked at is like, why are you trying to make me conform to X, Y, and Z? But you don't see the bigger picture. Yeah, and from the world they the were world. coming in, yeah. we coming, we coming off of a of a of a different life. This this is life or death, which really and truthfully, right. it still is life and death, right? But then go a step further. Yeah. You go, we go into the to the system. Let's go into the education system that a white teacher could say something that would cause you like you say to beat your child and not even think okay what wait a minute was this a did the child was the child actually right and 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 i I know and i and we all know those experiences we've all had i mean i don't know of a black child who did not have who could say they walked through all their educational life and saw only white teachers Mm -hmm. and there was never a white teacher that tried to harm you or hurt you or and, and particularly smart black mm-hmm. kids. Look, like, look, real talk, yes, and we keep it in the 100. Yes, like, white teachers are, um, are, what I have seen in my own life is that many white teachers come two ways. They either are paternalistic, and so they think of, like, the little black kids as their mission project mm-hmm. until the black kids show or start questioning some of the things that they do, and then Becky or Karen starts crying. Or they really are intimidated by black, like uh, the black child's excellence. And I real 100%, let me keep, let me give you how nasty, pernicious and pervasive this is. When I was, um, uh, Ivy League admissions offices and like top 10 schools often have to look at the recommendations differently for black students than they do for their white students because white teachers black students will walk into offices thinking that they're going to get this amazing recommendation from this teacher that they've had for three years and they may they may a's in the class Mm -hmm. teacher will write like they're smart but i don't know if they deserve they should really probably be at a state school like that's written in things Mm -hmm. that they will send off to places like duke or harvard or yale so again like you like a recommendation that a child has never seen because they trusted the white teacher and the white teacher is sitting there mad with them for going someplace that their little children their children can't go and so they they really try to they really try to do harm to black kids lives like so like these like i and i know that from having experienced it as my like as a child at lexington high school in lexington south carolina like i and I've written on this on my on my blog about um, it's called nigga in the back of the classroom. And so like I like the I did I, but I had no idea that like the admissions offices would have to evaluate the te- like the kinds of recommendations that come from teachers b- because of their racialized notions of black brilliance. Mm-hmm. 
I did, it wouldn't even cross my mind until somebody said, yeah, we have to actually, sometimes we have to throw the recommendations out. Yeah, because I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you talk about it. It's like, that, but I, I can see that happen. I can definitely but, say, especially when, like you said, the student won't even see the recommendation letter anyway. But like you said, they, they've done very well in a certain teacher's class. Meanwhile, the whole time mm-hmm. they're looking at them like, uh, I mean, yeah, like you said, you smart and all, but I wouldn't really put you I'm ahead of, you. you know, Billy over mm-hmm. there or Jason over there. But like I said, you smart though. Go, let, let's go here. Two, I'm going to say two things. First thing is this. The same professor that Palmer replaced was an absolute racist on our campus. To the point, like I said, that I got a C in her class, and I, I literally went to go appeal my grade, and that's how I found out the lady died. And I tell all my students about that. I was pissed. Like, what you mean she did? <laughs> no, ma'am. I will tell you this. Going to an HBCU, there are very few white students, right? But a white male was in that class with me, with her, and when I was getting my papers back, I'm like, she, what is, what is she grading? Like she, what rubric is she using? He was honest enough. And this is why I appreciate any white allies, anybody that's willing to say, this ain't right. I'm going to speak up. He gave me his paper to show me where she was giving him an A and he knew he was writing trash. Just complete trash. I'm talking about sentences that didn't match up. Um, no, no real conclusion, no real body to the paper. And he was like, I like, I know like your paper's better than mine. I have no idea. What, I like, he was like, no, I know why. <laughs> like, I know why she's giving me an A, but like, you need to use this for your appeal here and gave it to me. Mm-hmm. And so you have those kind of things happening. What? Like this lady really is trying to, <laughs> trying to fail me because of what? But, I, but, but, okay, hold on. So that's one story, but I want to make sure I throw this story out here. Palmer, let me tell you this now. Had a student who was in a um a white female teacher's class. He was a black male. They was button heads. Uh-huh. And he, you know, he could be a troublemaker, but you had just no cultural context and how to handle him. Okay? <laughs> Let's be honest. So it's I already know where this is going. Keep listen, going. It just got to the point where parent teacher conference, administrators come in, sit down with the teacher, they're going to transfer him to a different class. Fine. I want you to know that at the end of the school year, they send out a report that shows all of the students who failed a class and what class they failed. And they're just check. They just uh-huh. want the teachers to go through and see, like, do you have, do we have the right student on the yeah. failure list for your class? Uh-huh. This teacher came to the office and wanted uh-huh. to know why he wasn't on the failure list. So I'm going, what do you mean? Like, he's not in your class. She had given him such a low grade for that semester that he was in her class. He knew, she knew he couldn't pass. So she was like, ain't no way he passed. So I'm like, how evil can you be that you went through that list just to see, like, no, ain't no way he should have passed that class. And then she went a step further now. Let me tell you what else she did. The, the the student could have passed because the teacher that he got transferred to gave him work uh-huh. so that he could get um that grade picked up and you just do a grade change for him. They do it all yeah, the time. What was the what's what do y'all call it? You said I remember in one of y'all podcasts y'all talked um, about the great grade, recovery. Great recovery. Yeah. Great recovery. Great recovery. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Happens all the time, right? I want you to know that the the um <laughs> the lady who handled the grade recoveries had big three inch ring binders. Cause you had to turn in your paperwork to, you know, show why you were doing the great recovery. Do you know this, uh-huh. this lady sat in the office with us for hours and went through each binder until she saw where the teacher put in the grade change. Cause she was not going to leave until she saw that that's what happened. And, and this what's so hilarious about that is that, institutional racism can show up in predominantly black spaces, right? Isn't that crazy? That like, even in the sanctity of a historically black college, a predominantly black high school where almost all of the teachers, all of the professors are black, that ultimately like white privilege can show up and break kids, like break children. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. Like that's what's so crazy to me about that is that we all know that that is the case. Like the whole... Like this is like white women's racism showing like and like we can we can talk about white men later, but like well white women white women are so pernicious that it looks like like they 
Like all you got, and I was gonna say, I already know what was wrong. I'm gonna tell you about the kid. I, I don't even gotta know the kid, but I'm gonna tell you what I what I perceive. Mm-hmm. Kid is kid is smart. Kid probably is unpolished in the way that she thinks he's unpolished. Mm-hmm. Probably doesn't come from doesn't have doesn't have the right name. Doesn't have the right kind of parents. Um, he look he looked like he's too ethnic, mm-hmm. right? Again. This is about approximation. So this is why, and this is why I have a challenge with the tokenized black kid that we sometimes elevate and be like, oh, they're the smartest person in the room. The way to be, the way to game the system is actually not to be the smartest black kid in the room. The way to game the system is to allow whiteness to run the system, right? Like black kids get passed along all the time for not for being quiet and smiling in classroom and just being consistent with that. True. True. Black kids get passed all the time for just being nice and courteous. They don't know, they don't know George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. They don't know, but but you know who they do know? They know their name is Cynthia. Their name is Sheila. Their parents work at um at a respectable job. And and I don't actually really want to fight their parents on this kind of kid. But LaQuisha's kid, whose child is named LaTravion, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't care how smart he is. He's gonna he's ghetto trash who should go to community college. Mm. Mm. Their white people's narrations of black kids, like white people really are the like it doesn't surprise me that black kids are not ready to go off to college. Because most black kids are taught by white people across the school, across all education systems, and white people are not that invested in us. And see, that's that's, Beyond, that's like, the that's the challenge because you, oh goodness! And, it, and Chris and I had this conversation before too. This um with the episode with the it, conversation on race about that's a part of the necessity in K through twelve that. These students yeah. need people who look like them, but also if they don't mm-hmm. look like them, that they're still equally invested in making sure that, yeah, that I give you yeah. and I pour into you. I, I, I always think back when I was in um in eighth grade, our eighth grade teacher, Miss McLeod, was a white lady who I did not know until the eighth grade. She always do an eighth grade social at her house because it's not that many of us, little small little private schools. And when we went to her house, it was, you know, a house. Okay. But when I got old, I realized Miss McLeod got money. Like she lived in a really, really like nice neighborhood in, in our area. That's, these homes are not cheap, but she was so invested in us. Like we were her kids and she, she would get, she right. would get right with you immediately. She would fuss at you. She, she'd be mad. And then she'd come hug you. And then she'd tell you, you're going to be the greatest person in the world. But that that's what needs to happen for us. We need poor, more teachers yeah. like Miss McLeod. That's like, oh no, I'm I'm fussing at you because you're not dumb, but you just you're just trying to play over right. here and be cute. Come on in here, do my work because you know you said you want to grow up to be an astronaut, so let, let's go. Right. But then you got other people. It's like, mm, well, you know, the, the black kids tend to be a little slow. I don't like Lakeisha's attitude, <laughs> yeah. so Lakeisha can't. Lakeisha will not be on the cheerleading squad. And that's one of the reasons, like, I do think that one of the things that happens in K through 12 often is that black children really do learn in predominantly white spaces. And I'm not talking about black kids and historically, like, in predominantly black spaces. But black kids learn really early that the world is not fair. I've watched black kids not be picked for valedictorian, Mm. um, even though their grades were better. I've watched black kids not get the awards that they should have gotten because somebody said they had too much attitude. I've watched them not be picked for like the college, the high school queen, the SGA. And so all of that, all of those, all of those, all of those perceptions of instant, all of those perceptions of how good or how deserving they are, particularly when we let white boys off the hook for doing anything. And I do mean anything. Mm -hmm. Um, Really, really, it's t- it's a telling sign because ultimately we set those black kids up for failure. So black kids can't be on the dance squad in college because they couldn't make the dance squad in the high school because they didn't have the right, because their booty was too big or they're too developed. Mm-hmm. Like, think about how many black girls would dance or how many black boys would dance if they 
or would sing or would play basketball if they if it wasn't about their attitude. Like the one thing that I think that I struggle with my white colleagues when they want to work in higher education, any field where where you're going to touch students is that you have to see other people's children as your own, no matter what race, color, creed. And like, and like, I don't see that with them. And here's what I would say. Like, it's not like you want to live in your world and you want to know your world and then you want to expect them to understand your world. But the reality is like, there are, we are there, we are servant leaders in these roles, mm-hmm. right? Our job is to understand their world, is to help them make sense of their world. And when we don't commit to like making race education, as an example, a part of our life, like then how are you going to get to know, understand LaQuisha? Because mm-hmm. colorblind racism is racism. It's just racism saying, well, I don't see color. Well, if you don't see color, then you don't, then you're dismissing the cultural legacy, the political legacy, and the history that racism is that has on our world. Like they're like you still being racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just calling it colorblind. Mm-hmm. Like there's no such thing as colorblind. You don't know blue from green. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. So, so that's the kind of stuff that I do think like I get scared about or when I think about like the options that our children like I mean, you know, I've had several conniption fits about what to do with my child and what to do with our, you know, with my God, you know, how to support my my friends who who where I'm their godfather and they call me asking me like, well, how is this gonna play out when it gets to college? And I'm like, you wanna get these kids in this in these earlier years to places where they are not harassed? And then we gonna have to figure out if we gonna all create a boarding private school for our little beautiful black kids so they don't face some of this stuff and then try to get some other parents who are like us who don't want their kids facing some of this Mm -hmm. stuff so they can go off and see the world and not think, oh, well, uh, the books we read don't really ain't really about me, so I don't like English. Or the books, I don't really understand the Pythagorean theorem, right? Like, you'd be like, stupid, not stupid, because you're not stupid, baby. But like the Pythagorean theorem ain't even from Europe. I mean, it's from it's from Egypt. Like, like you even, like, cause think about this. If you can figure out the Pythagorean theorem, like if it's really yours, why can't you figure out how the pyramids were made? Mm-hmm. 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 So like, like, and we know that there was like, we know that there was theft of knowledge when the library in Egypt was burned down. So like. Like this isn't lies. Like you just don't know enough about yourself to see yourself in the in the narrative of of like a beautiful life. And I think that. And then the only thing that black folk, the black that black people really get to see is they get to see these persevering environments that look messed up, right? They don't get and like hip hop, right? So they get to see like the excess of hip hop, and then but also like what they live in, like which are you know little cute middle-class homes if you in Atlanta, but if you ain't in Atlanta mm-hmm. or if you ain't in PG County or if you're not in like, you know, it's one of these major, like these black major enclaves, you're not in Baldwin Hills, right? You see poverty. Your tails see like lots of it. Right. That's true. That's true. That you're sur- when you're surrounded by poverty or just your own experience, and the school right. doesn't give you Urban, any other exposure. Poverty, and they all, you know, rural poverty is horrible, right? Oh. Like, I don't, some of that ain't, they ain't even got, you know, running water in some of these places, mm-hmm. like in some of these counties, right? They don't have clean water to wash their bodies. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I, I definitely think, like, that's why I think that when people make the call for Black people to be educators, I do get why that that's, that call is being made. Unfortunately, Black, so parents hear this. I'm going to tell you this is why we're not teaching, because we would teach if we could get paid to do it. Um, we not dealing with crazy people as bosses because y'all like to keep these, y'all like to hire these principals and superintendents and assistant superintendents who do the work of whiteness rather than do the work of freeing the little black kids. And that's, we don't want to do that. (laughs) And also it don't pay enough and we carry a student loan debt. So until like Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or somebody come in office and release, release free the debt, we not going to no profession that pays us less than what we know we're worth. Amen. That's what we're not doing. We're not doing that. Yeah, <laughs> not for long. We, we yeah, might get a four I'm about to say, we do it. We're doing it for a short period of time. <laughs> and I am out of yeah, that chair. Right. Point blank period. Right. I got to get that check. 
<laughs> temporary. Because educators across the country should make sixty plus thousand dollars a year bare starting salaries. Starting salary. And I'm not talking you need to live in New York to do that. You need to be able to and student loan debt forgiven, all of it. Like and that would bring it that would bring more qualified teachers to the classroom. Mm-hmm. And like let's get rid of all these placement tests that y'all be making up that don't mean that student people can teach. Right. Like Y'all be doing competency tests like these tests mean something. Mm-hmm. These tests don't mean nothing. Right. I'm not talking about the students. I'm talking about the, for teachers. Right. Like, and then you got to pay for them out of pocket. And then you got to buy supplies for a classroom. And then you got to go make sure that the child got clothes and deodorant, Say tissue that. paper, mm-hmm. food, <laughs> medical device. You got to yep. be counseling. Who is doing all of this? What is we doing? Mm-hmm. What is we doing yeah, here? Right. I'm not doing it. Yep. <laughs> right. And you know what? It's sad that I get that there are other parts of the job, but sometimes it's it's hard for people to realize. But all of that shouldn't be your job. And ain't no sometimes. Most of the time, yes. Most, like it should be. It time. should be out of the careness of my heart. And they want you to plan prom with two dollars. We gotta do prom. We gotta do this and we gotta do all of this. And like you said, two dollars in my pocket, <laughs> and ain't no budget. Yeah, and then you got to be up at the crack of dawn. Oh, my Jesus. And then, oh, oh, my Jesus. Uh, then you got to hold, hold your bladder the whole day? Whole day. I would see, first of all, let me be real cool. Like, my kids would be mad. My kids would be tearing my classroom up. <laughs> Uh, I, they would, uh, they would know that I was, I would kick their little butts. They, I'd probably be crazy if I was a teacher. That's why. I, but, but you know, my students say that now. My students, like, my Sean's class is probably one of the most rigorous classes at the university. Mm-hmm. So, they, I, and I like that reputation. There's a reason why. Because we come thinking that black people are substandard and we come thinking that knowledge about black people is less than knowledge about everything else. We make knowledge about ourselves ancillary to the story of ourselves. But if you don't centralize your, if you don't center yourself in the story, then really you just the byline in somebody else's narrative. Mm. And I ain't mm. never come to be second fiddle in nobody's nothing. Yeah. Okay, and neither are the children that I serve, which is why I tell the students that I serve um, in my cultural center, but also the black students that I teach who don't always come to the cultural center. You're going to have to figure out the questions that are really your questions and your grandmama's questions and stop asking and answering white people's questions about you first. Because that's not your first question is, is not how do white people feel about you dancing in the hallway and eating a chicken sandwich? Your first question should be, how do I feel about emoting joy in this space that does not uh, give me the space to give the kind of joy I would give it? That's that's the first question. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is my grandmama happy that I am joyful and excited about being in this place? Is she excited that I'm tearing this thing up? Like My standard of excellence is higher than any Eurocentric standard placed upon me. And so therefore, when I walk into a classroom, it don't matter if the teacher don't know my name the first day, but when I sit in the, when I sit in the front front pew and bring extra books and tear up all the papers and make sure and make sure that the professor got to go read more because they got to go check behind me, like that's what make your grandmama happy mm-hmm. in these spaces, right? Like what makes what does not make her happy is us sitting somewhere surviving, persisting. Like and being sad, singing sorrow songs—they've already done that. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> already, already did. Been done. Already been done. Yeah, I'm trying to be sad. We already done the spirituals. How many times are we gonna sing? Nobody know my name. Nobody know what trouble I see and all of that stuff. Like, like these experiences really should. We have to center. Like, I would say to you, both of y'all, like as, as y'all talk to teachers, like one of the things that I have loved is seeing black teachers take black history month and make it and cut it into paper and make HBCU boards and Latimer like they got you know everything on Du Bois and everything on Carter G. Woodson all the peanuts and all the this and all the that and like and Benjamin Banneker I love that I just wish that that was the that was the space that we lived 365 right. days where we're around. teaching black yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Black History Month oh those were good times good times <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay, so y'all got we yeah keep going. Oh, look, I was just gonna go ahead and huh, wrap it up for the night. Um, well, y'all probably listening to y'all whoever listening during the day. Just know we we've been in here grinding because I'm gonna have to break this up into two episodes because that's how it was. You can you have to break it in. You can break it into two parts, but I I really you know I do this work because I came I came to deliver. I think one of my callings in life is to liberate Black folk. I never. 
I have learned that my first questions when I go into a space are not how do white people see me, but how do I oh, see myself yes, right. and what is the kind of and what what is the impact I want to make on the lives of black folk? Um, I still believe um, that there are race people, race men, race women and race folk folks doing this work who really have come to liberate the next generation so that they can be free, so that black girl magic and black boy joy can be realized. I am thankful that we're speaking that in the air. I am glad that we're saying things like black lives indeed do matter. Mm -hmm. But the work is still, there's still work for us to do in this vineyard. And if we are not going to save ourselves, I don't know who's coming to save us. And so I just would encourage, you know, y'all, as your podcast continues to blossom and blow up, that you know that, like, like this is the work that needs to be done to free some teacher from putting all the little black kids in the back of the classroom because they are rambunctious and they don't want to see their faces or not being able to master some little child's name and thinking that that is okay or thinking that they're going to write the offer recommendation and the child is not going to get into Duke or Harvard or Yale because the truth of the matter with black folk, regardless of whether you shoot one or two of us, is that still we rise mm. now. And you may not know who that is, but you probably should look up Maya Angelou. Not you, but your yeah, listeners. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> come on. Hello. Come on. You might want to check it out. <laughs> well, listen, <laughs> you you have done more than enough um in your in your career of working in education. Um anybody who knows me, any student that I've ever worked with knows you. And so the power of your work is beyond just the campus you are at. I have students who I don't call them Dukes juniors. I call them Palmer juniors. Mm-hmm. And they will tell you like, uh, Palmer, that's her mentor. They, was, <laughs> they know the whole story. Uh, <laughs> I t- that's good. I love it. You know, I love a whole set of, I have PJ squares. Lord, <laughs> y'all can't tell me nothing. PJ squares. <laughs> Listen. One day, what? One day when I one day when I um maybe when I turn fifty or something I'll throw a party and then I'm invite every PJ from every school oh, yes. and they will they'll get to invite their PJs yes. and then we we gonna have and I because I think everybody gonna like each other y'all gonna be like now what do you do they're gonna be like oh I run like I do so like I run social media for like a major company that's owned by black people <laughs> girl. <laughs> That's what you do for your life, uh, and you don't even. Re- and it's fu- and it's funny that you say that because I'm literally when you were talking earlier, one of I guess you would say a PJ squared text me, and and I looked at the phone. And I was like, I'm recording. I ain't about to see what she about to say. So then I go look, and uh, she has found a mentor on her campus. She goes to HBCU. She goes to Claflin, and the mentor hey. um, was telling her. When you graduate, whatever job you want in education, I'm going to make it my business to help you get it. Like, whatever it is you want. Yeah. And she was telling the girl, I'm just, I just watching you through this year and how great the student was and you got a 4.0. But the funny part was that she said, and that day I saw you crying in such and such office and, you know, you pulled yourself together and da 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 So she was texting me to show me, like, Miss Zeus, like, look, like, I'm, I'm, my mentor said da-da-da. My first question was, why, why are you crying in somebody's office? What is wrong with you? <laughs> and she told me something. Dang, that's the first thing you, you see. You crying for the new people. You crying for the Thank us. you. You, you, do, you don't cry in front of them. You don't know them. I said, you ain't text me and you have any crying fits. And, no, ma'am, we ain't doing that. I said, I just drove straight to Claflin and came and got you. What's the problem? What you, what you was wrong? Come you on. Get it together. Because what you could, like I tell my kids, you can come home, but it better be with a degree. There you go. We ain't, yeah, we ain't coming back to right. Augusta, Georgia for, for nothing. For nothing. Yeah. You can't do you it. You can't do it. Right. But that but that is that is well, attributed you know, to you though. <laughs> well, and you know, my expectation is you better have two or three. You better beat me at them. So like mm-hmm. so like and if you're not gonna have no degrees, you better know that like you better have some opportunity. Mm. And so like you need to figure out like what it is that your mark is on the world. And I definitely think that that is true for the students that I have mentored who gravitate towards me. And really, honestly, and I am grateful that that is the work that I get to do every day that I get paid to mentor and break and shatter, uh, you know, glass walls, glass doors, glass ceilings, like all, cause you know, I, sometimes I think we all in glass, mm-hmm. right? 
Mm-hmm. So I, I, but I really am grateful that I get to walk with students on this life. And I mean, and like, and just like you, Sharon, like, you know, like, I mean, watching you do your EDD and become Dr. Dukes, mm-hmm. right, was everything to me because like, it's the, it's the, it's the student exceeding the teacher. Like, it's the, like, it's like, like this girl gonna be somebody. This girl is somebody. This girl is making her mark in the world. And like, and not only is she making her mark, but her husband, who understands math, and you know me and you don't do math, you that's what I mean. <laughs> and he a genius. And like, he, he helped me understand how a pandemic works by dressing up like a zombie. So I, like, I just have to marvel at all of that work. Like, I think if I could have been great. I could have been a medical doctor right now if I had had Melvin Dukes as a teacher. You hear me? <laughs> so. I, but but the Lord just said not so because so I have accepted and I I I I have said ashe to my calling to bring to go back and fetch all the little black kids who think that they're lost. Yes. And so and so like that's what I'm going. That's what I'm here to do. And if the white people um, who like me are listening and want and you know and if you like I tell them like the church tells you like my mission is to say the black kids. But if you get blessed by something I'm doing. Know that that's the overflow. Yes, that's, that's yes, the overflow. The, amen. That's the overflow, mm-hmm. and I and you can be free too, and we all can be free. Mm-hmm. And like you know, what's the what's the young what's the brother who you had on who did counseling? Chris, Chris. Is it Chris? Chris. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I was like, I need colleagues like Chris. I was like, Chris Smart. He, I want to work with Chris. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And what I and what I appreciate about Chris is like he's honest about it. It's like you, I he don't. He recognized I ain't losing nothing by being honest. Like it's the truth. What what else? What else do yeah. I do? I need to say like this is facts, people. I was like, thank you. Well, I appreciate you. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh my god, he's doing white people's work. Mm-hmm. Like it's not black people who having the because he was like when he started talking about white identity theory. I was like, well, that's based on um, black identity theory by William Cross. Like because it's the the sister the sis, there's a sister who did the white identity theory, right? And I was just like, oh, that is so awesome. White people finally doing their work. Mm-hmm. And I just was like, because that's the work. White people's job is to make white people anti-racist. I can't do that work. Mm-hmm. That's just not my I ministry. literally... Right I'm not go, called to that ministry. Look, we want, what I can do is help interrupt white people from killing black kids. Right. That's what I can do. If you go on Twitter right now... I can't interrupt them. You, you yeah. gonna see on Twitter right now. I that's just retweeted. Um, a, a woman said... She said, white people, I have a question. What are you doing to raise your child to know not to kill me? Mm-hmm. I said absolutely nothing because <laughs> they don't care. And I was like, that's oh. what I wrote. I think, I don't know if I saw it on yours, but I tweeted like, they not doing nothing, baby. <laughs> they just, they, I, just, it's not a concern of theirs, so they not <laughs> hey, they want us to. They want us to go back to Waffle House so they can kill us with coronavirus because <laughs> we don't, because we, we can't get to the doctor's office. Uh, so no, we, we, like but I, it's but look, it's going to say, that's what like, it's going to take. I want that. I do want I do want white people to to learn. I definitely don't mind teaching the students who are committed to like their own anti racist work. I have, um, I have like one or two friends who are really like white friends who are really committed to that work. That I would say that they that's what they do for the culture. Yeah. Um, but like they have to help translate white folks for me. Cause like I sometimes be like I don't I don't really have I live in so I live in Wakanda like Upperman is Wakanda on my campus <laughs> like my center is Wakanda so I don't be really thinking about like I just Sharon I, I really just go about my business like I be like I see black kids every day I go teach black my black class come back to my black office see my black boss see my black staff black, have a black meeting black, black. I call Uhuru. <laughs> Yeah, like it's I I have it's like a miniature HBCU inside the black inside the white campus. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, so, like, so like I don't you know I really do, but I love when I meet genuine white folk who are really trying to help interrupt whiteness. Like I don't mind that white folk have culture. I think we ought to name their stuff as culture. Like like the fact that they like casseroles and lattes and pumpkin spice. Like that's their stuff. Right. Like I'm not absolutely. mad at having yeah, that. Absolutely. My, no, Miley Cyrus. That's not all of our stuff. That's their right. stuff. The little girl, something Billie Eilish. The stuff like that. That's their mm-hmm. stuff. And sometimes I like their stuff. Like I like a, you know, I like a good Devil Wears Prada. I like a yeah. good Eat, Pray, Love. Like I do their stuff. But that ain't, but that ain't our stuff. Mm-hmm. 
that's not our stuff because you know most of y'all stuff leave us out. <laughs> so, right. so like my thing is like, <laughs> like, but like, if y'all would just do y'all's work on y'all and stop expecting black people to be the omniscient Negro who gonna always die on the cross. And, mm. man, to and, and, and my thing is, is first recognize that oh. there's work to be done. Like, be honest with that part mm-hmm. first. They are, be, that's, be the, that's the beauty of privilege. That's true. That's the beauty of privilege. They don't have to. They don't have to think about right. that. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. Like they just get. To, they walk around oblivious right. until it. Until now, I'll tell you when it's until Sharon, because you need to, Melvin. This is when it's until. Until they've adopted a black kid. Oh, until it's, this is us. It's until they have a black spouse. Mm-hmm. Until they really care about their black yeah, friend yeah, who yeah. just got called the N word or who just experienced racism. It's until they have intimate relationship with us. Yeah, you got And be. I'm gonna tell you the examples of intimate relationship before I get off this phone because I do think I need to give you a little bit of theology before I roll out of here. Okay, so here's the thing. If a you know you have a relationship with white people if you if they've been to your wedding, okay. if they will be at your family's funeral, mm-hmm. if they've eaten at your table mm-hmm. in your house, mm-hmm. and vice versa. And most of us really have transactional relationships with white people. So therefore, some of the work that we are doing is because we only see them at work. And that is not relationship. That's proximate. Those are approximations that make us feel good. Oh. See, we have a diverse staff. See, we have a da 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 da. Oh. But it's but we don't actually have relationship that, with them. That is a lot why. of us don't necessarily want relationship with them. But, and that but, that but exactly what you're saying is why our students, when Trump won the second time, that's when we were working in the school system. When Trump won the second time. I mean, when <laughs> child Lord, let me not speak oh, that yeah, in there. Oh Lord, not, rebuke it, Jesus. When Obama won the second time uh-huh. and our students, our black students were in shock at the comments that the white students were making because those right. were what they thought were their friends. But they were just in proximity to you. They were in class with you. We have cracked jokes and yeah, we've been here. But I mean, I ain't never been to your house. I don't know your mama. I won't buy your house. I don't know where you stay. So that makes makes sense as why it's like, yeah, it's not relation. Like they really weren't in a um, true uh, relationship with us. It was just with them as students. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And once you get in a true relationship with anybody, it's going they get to see all of your sides and you get to actually develop a friendship. I think that I don't think I don't necessarily think that's necessarily like our first goal. Like it's not my first goal. Mm-hmm. But I do think if you care about people, if they care about people, then they have to walk or they have to see they have to see our humanity tied to us. That's the one thing about COVID, the COVID-19 scare that you need an ethic of thinking about the other. You have to think about not just yourself, but the but three other people who you don't know who could be affected by what you what you're carrying in your body. Yes. And that is a that's that's mm. that's hard for people who've been overdosing on individualism and bootstraps mm-hmm. that they they got they built their own self up from their own self without having to think about like all they the other people, other people who were killed in the process. Never had to think about other people. Right. So, so, you know, that's where I, where I, where, you know, where we, we start, where we begin, which is that all of us have to do the work that we are called to. Um, we have to consider the, the work of racism in our work and we have to seek to deconstruct those practices that are death dealing to the people that we serve. And I think that if we can do that, then, then we, we can be proud of the legacy that we leave on this side of earth. And going to going and going and join going and join Jesus, but black people cannot climb back up on a cross that Jesus has already climbed on to do the work. Mm-hmm. So, well, that ain't our job. We not saviors. Well, thank you, Sean Palmer, for joining us on the podcast. Amen. Um, like I said before, we are going hey. to do a two part series of this. I got to figure out what my title and everything is gonna be. <laughs> But um, <laughs> I like dear white people, so I think you should name dear it white dear white people. people. Okay. You could split this in two parts and make it dear white people one and white people two. They're gonna be people probably gonna be like, Lord, this a lot. Like I ain't gonna listen to two. <laughs> one was enough for me. <laughs> Just long we'll get sued. We right. 
Um, before we go, I do want to um do a special shout out to all of our podcast supporters, which the first one I'ma name. The the owner of that beautiful event company, Bowtie Planners, is the Mr. Sean Palmer. <laughs> hey, <laughs> so if y'all go to our website and you um at www.theritefeft.com and click on podcast and visit our supporter section, you will see Bowtie Planners, the Skin Society, Marietta Smile Gallery with Dr. Michael Thomas, Taste Buds, Nostalgia Clothing, and Distinct curation so make sure you check out each one um if you go to um at bowtie planners right on instagram that's your instagram for um yep and it's in french b-e-a-u-t-i-e yeah. planners bull tie planners bull. we tie it up in a bull, bull tie like you're in new orleans <laughs> hit the buffet <laughs> <laughs> Y'all make sure you uh, subscribe to the podcast give us our five stars please 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 we're trying very hard we are um like a like a few short clicks from four thousand downloads. Let's make it to the four thousand. Yeah, we're trying baby. to get to for like when I say a few, like probably by tomorrow we or in the morning we'll be at four thousand. So let's go ahead and kick it off to five thousand. Let's go ahead and get there. So y'all make sure y'all stay safe. Wash your hands. Stay in quarantine. Don't go outside. Keep the mask on. <laughs>